We are in part two of Daniel 5, and in every chapter so far, Daniel has been intentionally setting before us a sovereign God. I'll quote uh, Nebuchadnezzar from the previous chapter. He says this, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is the ultimate king. The Lord of heaven and earth has decreed the end from the beginning, and he has decreed that Babylon would be used as his instrument in his hand against Israel in judgment. And he has decreed that once Israel has been judged by Babylon, he will turn and judge Babylon for their iniquity. Babylon has risen only for that purpose. And what is the reason for this? God would have us see the glory of his judgment, the glory of his judgment. God is chiefly concerned with his glory, and he must be. If God did not seek his glory in all things, he would be no better than sinful men in terms of righteousness. He must value that which is supremely valuable, and only he is of infinite worth. If his chief concern was anything else, God would be committing idolatry. And so he must seek his own glory in all things. God can't allow anything to transpire in time and space in all of creation that won't, in the end, bring him glory. And if you miss this, you misunderstand the whole Bible. Why does God save sinners for his glory? Why does God judge sinners for his glory? How about this one? Why did God allow sin and evil? Same answer, for his glory. You may have heard this argument before. God doesn't exist because a good God wouldn't allow evil. Have you guys heard that? You've heard that before? Well, no. It's just the opposite. God decreed that sin and evil would exist for the full display of all that he is, which is the greatest good. Were it not for sin and evil and for the fall of man, we would know nothing of the glory of God's grace and mercy, and we would know nothing of the glory of his wrath and his justice and his judgment. Listen. The joy and fulfillment of eternal life are found in knowing and delighting in all of God, all of God. And so even in heaven, we would still be unfulfilled. We would be no better off if God did not shine forth the glory of his righteous judgments. And therefore, it is a most holy and loving thing for God to display all that he is to his elect. Yes, his mercy and grace toward wicked men, but also his wrath and his judgments toward wicked men. I'll say it this way. It is a most loving thing for God to display the glory 
of his judgments. Romans 9, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, that's the elect, which he prepared beforehand for glory. It's right there. And so in this chapter, in chapter 5 of Daniel, we get a glimpse of that glory. Here's the outline for Daniel 5. There are four elements of God's sovereign judgment on display in this chapter. And last week we saw that the judgment which was to come upon Belshazzar and the city of Babylon is well-deserved. They've filled up the measure of their sins. God gave them over to the lusts of their heart. And being lovers of darkness and enslaved to sin, they had no choice but to freely and willingly fall into that depravity. Like a starving lion has no choice but to devour flesh, and he does so willingly. And just by way of reminder, the Persian army is right outside the city of Babylon. And all that stands between Belshazzar's defeat and the fall of Babylon are these incredibly massive walls and fortifications. And you'll remember that Belshazzar, because of these walls, and very much because of the wine, intentionally provoked God to anger by taking his holy vessels and using them licentiously to exalt and worship the idols of Babylon. Now, God could have handled this in any number of ways. For one, he didn't have to respond. We know that God typically allows the wicked to prosper, even to old age. They go on and on in their sin and unbelief, when all the while God's judgments are on high, out of their sight, and they are every moment storing up wrath for themselves for the day of wrath. God usually doesn't respond so openly on this side of eternity. But in this case, he decided to respond to this insult. And so when Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall, he is truly undone. His face, you'll remember, which used to be red from the wine, has become white with fear. His conscience alarms him that this could well be from the very God he profaned and the very God he encouraged others to profane as well. And so here we are. A hand appeared and wrote something on the wall. And Belshazzar is utterly terrified by this uninvited guest. And so he's lost the strength to stand and his knees are knocking together. And from here we go on to the next point. In our outline, the judgment declared. The judgment declared. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar called out for the same group that has been utterly useless so far in the book of Daniel, these practitioners of an occult system, and he promises the prize of royalty, the third ruler 
in the kingdom of Babylon. And that's, that's really all he's got to offer. Uh, here's the scenario. Nabonidus is the first ruler, the co-regent. Belshazzar is the second. And whoever can interpret the writing on the wall would be the third co-regent in Babylon. So let's see how these wise men do. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make, the, make known to the king the interpretation. Well, it's not surprising to us that they couldn't interpret the writing. But what is surprising is that they couldn't even read it, even though it's in Aramaic, as we'll see. It's in their own language. And we aren't exactly sure why they can't read it. Here's Rembrandt's interpretation. Can you guys see that? Okay, it's right up there in the corner there. Um, so normally Aramaic, like Hebrew, is, is read right to left. But as you can clearly see, no, I'm just kidding, you can't see that. Uh, for those of you who know Hebrew, uh, it's written vertically. And for those of you who have read ahead, it's written vertically. So, but we just don't know why they couldn't read what's in their own language. But hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? That the world is totally unable to solve man's greatest problems. It is bankrupt of any aid when it comes to spiritual and in, uh, eternal realities. And God has willed it to be that way. We see that in 1 Corinthians 2. But specifically, in Isaiah, God has already said that these men won't be of any help to Babylon or to Belshazzar. Let's see it. Isaiah 47. This is the Lord. He says, You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. This is sarcasm. Those who divide the heavens, that's the astrologers, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known to you what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. When the flames of judgment come to you, all that you've trusted in Belshazzar will burn up as well. That's the picture. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom in which he so trusted is good for nothing when God brings his judgment. And how does he respond to that? Verse 9, Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. One translation reads it this way, Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face grew even more pale. And I think that's closer to Daniel's intention when he wrote this. But let's go on. Verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Now, this queen is most likely Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, who would be Nabonidus' wife, and therefore Belshazzar's mother. That's my interpretation. And she gives the typical greeting, O king, live forever, which to the reader is ironic because he would only live for a couple more hours at most. There is a man in your kingdom, this is the queen, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him, 
And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will declare the interpretation. Now at this point, some of you may be thinking, Pastor, didn't you just tell us that Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's grandfather? Why does it say here that he's his father? Did you even study for this? Well, yes, I did. And fun fact, neither in Hebrew nor in Aramaic uh, is there any word for a grandfather or a grandson. You, you say father's father or son's son, but it was common uh, to just use the word father or son as synonymous with successor to a throne, uh, even if they weren't related by blood. And, and that's what we see here. And so the queen remembered Daniel after all these years. And it seems that she has great confidence in this man. The text doesn't say what has happened to him since the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And we can only guess, but I have a hunch that neither Nabonidus nor Belshazzar wanted anything to do with this man. Both of them worshipped pagan gods. And so the queen has to essentially persuade her son to bring in the man who only serves the god of Judah, the god that Belshazzar had just insulted. But he has no choice if he wants to know what the writing says. And notice that though she knows his Babylonian name, she refers to him by his Hebrew name, Daniel, which in Hebrew means God is my judge. So Belshazzar has to call in a man whose name means God is my judge. And we can assume that he feared the interpretation such a man might bring. But again, he has no choice. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation, but they cannot show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. First thing to notice here is that Daniel is brought in, which means that Daniel was not initially at this feast. He always arrives on the scene as one completely separate from the rest of the world, as he should be as a man of God. So Daniel enters. He's an old man now. Certainly his face and demeanor reflect a life of godly living and sobriety in contrast to the rest of this drunken crowd who have been doing nothing else but indulging in the flesh. And Belshazzar addresses him not as the chief of the wise men, which he is, but as one of the exiles of Judah. He's putting Daniel in his place right at the outset. Oh, right, you're, you're one of those exiles from the people we conquered. Hmm. Now, Belshazzar most likely knew about Daniel prior to this. In any case, he relays the situation to Daniel, and he offers the same prize, third ruler in the kingdom. And man, what an easy way to the top this would have been for Daniel. Power and riches 
are just words away. But how does Daniel respond? Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Huh? Why does Daniel refuse this? I mean, can't you just hit two birds with one stone? He already knows the interpretation. Well, Daniel doesn't want Belshazzar to know, or he doesn't want uh, Belshazzar to think that in accepting this, he is under any obligation to tell the king what he wants to hear. Daniel is here to declare the truth. I'm reminded of what Balaam said in Numbers 24. If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Daniel is saying, you can't buy a different decree. What the Lord has written, that's what I will declare to you. Daniel is not motivated or influenced by earthly riches or power. Now, we'll see that Daniel didn't give Belshazzar the typical greeting, O king, live forever, because he knows that Belshazzar's time has come. Verse 18, O king, the most high God, the God you just insulted, by the way, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. Now, isn't that a good definition of sovereignty? Power over life and death, power to exalt and to humble. The implication here is this. If God gave Nebuchadnezzar your progenitor, this level of sovereignty, which far surpasses yours, then how great and how sovereign must this God, this king, be? And how great, then, is your obligation to serve and to honor him? Daniel continues, But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Now, I won't go into detail here. You can listen to Pastor Jeremy's sermon on this. But it's enough to say that self-exaltation is actually less than human. It's completely unreasonable. It's not right for man, a mere creature, to exalt himself above God the Creator. Those who exalt themselves are less reasonable than animals. At least they know their place. And so Nebuchadnezzar was given the mind of an animal. And God mercifully taught him a lesson in humility, a lesson which Belshazzar knew about. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. 
Belshazzar had likely seen with his own eyes what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and he knew the reason for it, and yet he refused to humble himself before God. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Again, God is chiefly concerned with his glory. Praise and honor is to be given him by all that has life and breath, especially from those in a position of authority. Now, Belshazzar's judgment was greater because of what he knew. We saw that in verse 22. And the same is true for every man. And the typical deflection goes like this. Well, what about people who have never heard the gospel? What about them? God certainly can't judge them. Wrong. Wrong. They know enough to be rightly condemned. We saw it in Romans 1 already this morning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Skip to verse 21 for the sake of time. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. So all people inherently know that there is a God who rules in creation. They all know enough to be judged, and they also know that judgment is coming. Same chapter, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Every man knows that God judges sin. And you say, well, what about the people who say they don't believe? Or the people who say they just don't know if there is a God? They know. They know. God is the one who has made it evident to them, and he didn't fail in that. But sinful men suppress the truth in unrighteousness, like a beach ball in the ocean. Because they love sin, they don't want God to exist, at least this God, the God of the Bible. So they suppress the truth, but they are without excuse, God says. Every man knows, whether they admit it or not, that he exists and that he is to be honored. Let's zoom in on verse 23. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored? Your so-called gods, the idols you hold in your hand, have no breath in them. Whereas this God holds your breath in his hand. And again, Belshazzar, you knew this. God needs only to close his hand, as it were, to snuff out your life. It's that easy for him. And God is under no obligation to keep his hand open at any moment. In fact, justice cries aloud for God to clench his fist, for the soul that sins must die, Ezekiel 18, 20 says. 
And we might ask why God holds his hand open for so long, such that the wicked prosper. And the answer is this. Scripture tells us that God is patient to save for the praise of his grace, or he waits to store up wrath for the praise of his justice and the display of his power. And it says, the God in whose hand are all your ways. What's Daniel saying? He's saying what Paul said in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. God's sovereign hand doesn't just keep us in life. It governs all that we do. Belshazzar, your gods don't see, but the true God guides every move you make. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. All things, not just the big things, but every detail of life. God is the power behind all things and their works, and yet he is not chargeable for sin. The king of kings is much more sovereign than we think. And so the indictment to Belshazzar is this. The God who keeps you breathing, who has for some reason held you up from the flames of hell to this point, is the same God who has orchestrated your entire life and your sole responsibility as his creature was to honor him. And you failed. You failed. Then from his presence... The hand was sent, verse 24. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. In other words, not a moment of time can be added to the boundary fixed by God. This is true for Babylon, and this is true for every kingdom, except for one, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for this kingdom and for this king that we're waiting. Let's go on to the next one. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Here's a balance. Back in the day, you'd use this in trade and commerce. Uh, for example, if you wanted to see if the gold the customer was giving you is really gold, uh, you'd place the standard, the real stuff, on one side and what the other person is giving in the same amount on the other side. And if it goes up, you know it's not real gold. Well, Belshazzar himself has been weighed, as it were, in the balance, and he doesn't meet the standard. But it's accurate to say that every man when weighed in the balance, is found wanting. Psalm 62 says, Those of low estate are but a breath, and those of high estate are but a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are altogether lighter than a breath. No man meets God's standard. And what is that standard? You must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How's that going for you? Right? We all fall short of that glory. None of us meet that standard. I've met people who say that they've never sinned once in their entire lives. But when I ask them, are you as holy as God is holy? 
even if they don't have the sense to see their sin. They have enough sense in them to say, absolutely not, but who is as holy as God is? And then I tell them, the standard for entrance into the kingdom of God is not just sinlessness, it is perfect righteousness, the righteousness at the level of God, and of that we all fall short. And you say, but what about all my righteous deeds? Surely God must be impressed with that. Isaiah 64 says this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Trusting in your righteousness is like holding up dirty underwear to the Lord and saying, Look, Lord, my righteousness. And he says, Get that out of my sight. That is detestable to me. Friends, this is why we need a righteousness not our own. We need someone else's righteousness credited to our account. Jesus' life was weighed in God's balance, and it was found to be perfect, able to fully satisfy the demands of His holiness, not just for Himself, but for all those who come to God through Him. The only standard by which we should weigh ourselves is on God's scale. He is the standard. And when we do that, we find that we have no other choice but to flee to Christ and to be found in Him. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill Thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and Thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You can't fulfill the law's demands. You must turn and fly to the only Savior. He has nailed your sins on the cross. He has washed them away with his blood, and only in him can we meet that standard. So Belshazzar finds that he's not as weighty or substantial as he thought. He is altogether lighter than a breath like all of us. And were he to hear this in any other occasion, he might have had Daniel's head for exposing to everyone around him just how insignificant and lacking he really is. But he allows Daniel to go on. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Babylon's glory days are over. God is moving along his timeline, and next in line is Medo-Persia. And on and on and on it goes until the Son of Man comes and establishes his everlasting kingdom. So that's the interpretation. How does Belshazzar respond? Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, Daniel doesn't want any of these things, and what good is it to be the ruler of a kingdom that will only last a couple hours? But notice that Daniel, or, but notice, not Daniel, that Belshazzar gave the command to Daniel to receive the gifts, means that he believed the interpretation was right. 
And yet, what's missing? Repentance. Belshazzar seems altogether insensible to the fact that he stands under God's judgment, which is what you'd expect from a man who's been given over to a depraved mind and a hardened heart. Now, even while Daniel was interpreting this, the prophecy was being fulfilled as the Medes and Persians poured into the city. Which brings us to our fourth and final point, judgment delivered. Judgment delivered. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And you say, wait a minute, what about his walls? How did they get in? It was actually quite simple. Cyrus had diverted the Euphrates River, which ran right through the middle of the city, and his army used the riverbed to enter and capture the city. The Nabonidus Chronicle mentions all of this, and it says that Cyrus's army entered Babylon without a battle. Babylon fell to the Persians easily and quickly. It was not a competition, no challenge whatsoever. And this was decreed. This was decreed. Isaiah 47 Now therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely. These two things shall come upon you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. And that's exactly how it played out. One historian mentions that this crowd was found drinking and dancing when the army came upon them, which means that after they saw the hand and heard the judgments, they went right back to their sin. One moment, they're eating, drinking, and being merry, and the next, they're slain, and they have fallen into an eternity without Christ. It should remind us of this parable. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is required of you. For those outside of Christ, how foolish is it to go another day without having prepared your soul to come before a holy God on his day of judgment. The text says, that very night, no further time was given to Belshazzar for repentance. Neither his walls, nor his gods, nor his counselors could avert or delay God's judgment of him. When your time is up, it's up. And it should give you no comfort that things are looking well for you now and that you don't see how you could perish this very day. Many people arrive in hell having thought they had many more years to come. But like Belshazzar, all our days are numbered. So you may not have a handwriting on your wall, but the Lord has written concerning the judgment of all mankind. Take a look at the wall here. You don't need Daniel to interpret this, right? We all know what it says. God spelled it out very clearly. This is the judgment. 
You can see that there. I won't read all of them. But it's not only judgment that's written in his word. And praise God for that. There are also words of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. And the way to them, whatever handwriting there was against those who believe, Christ has taken it out of the way, having washed it away by his blood. Only in him is there forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. And in contrast to Belshazzar and to every man, only Christ had something different written of him. Weighed and found worthy of unnumbered days and an eternal kingdom. And for all of you who are united to Christ by faith, this is written of you. And it's not that we are any better than Belshazzar. No, the same seed of wickedness is found in all of us. Believer, you and I ought to stand in wonder at this God and his kindness toward us. Why should you or I be chosen as a recipient of his grace while he passed over countless others? There is nothing in us that makes us worthy of such an inheritance that we now possess. But there was everything in us that made justice cry out for our condemnation. The only explanation is that God, out of the mere pleasure of his will, chose you or I to be a means to display the glory of his grace, though we could have just as easily been a means to display the glory of his judgment. And praise God for opening our eyes to our sin and to see the Savior and to cause us to run to him so that we might be found in him and to be joyful citizens in his everlasting kingdom. All other kingdoms will come and go, just like Babylon and Medo-Persia. Verse 31, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. With only a few words, Daniel reported one of the most significant events in history, the fall of the great Babylonian empire. It's almost anticlimactic. But the head of gold has given way to the chest and arms of silver, and every detail was exactly as God decreed it for the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, you are the true king, the king of all kings, the sovereign of all sovereigns. And you are able to bring low the exalted and to exalt the humble. Our Lord Jesus, because of his supreme condescension, has been given a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Lord, you have made the knees of these two kings bow before you. One was made willing by your grace. The other, his knee has been bent with a rod of iron to display the glory of your judgment. May it be that every knee of those in this room would be made willing to bend before the Lord Jesus Christ, open their eyes to see his glory and his all-sufficient sacrifice for sinners on that cross. Thank you for such a great Savior, and thank you that it pleased you to save even us, we who are so unworthy to enter your kingdom. We rejoice and praise you for your wonderful gift of grace to us. Give us grace to do all things, whether we eat or drink, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.